0: 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. This now beloved, the second letter, this is now beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. I like that. It, Peter assumes that they sincerely want to know. Your sincere mind, he says. He calls them beloved. These are beloved family to Peter across all of Asia, spread out, and, and he's just saying, you matter to me? and I know you really want to know these things, that's why I'm writing this letter to stir you up, that you should remember the words spoken beforehand, note this, by the holy prophets, and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Peter clearly places the words of the apostles on equal footing with the words of the ancient prophets. And that's important to note. Because the words of the, of the apostles are the words of Jesus. Guess what? The words of the ancient prophets are the words of Jesus. It is the Spirit of Christ who spoke these things. And remember, God being eternal, God being I am, always present, was present then, is present now, has always been. And His Spirit spoke these things to the ancient prophets, the Hebrew prophets. So we have the Hebrew Scriptures. His Spirit in Jesus spoke these things. The Apostles now share these things with the fledgling churches. It began to grow and now we're with Peter 30 years, 35 years, roughly into the birth of this church. And they heard these things and these teachings. Even this letter Peter is writing. And it's important to note that Peter is establishing and recognizing the authority and the authenticity of the New Testament. He's undergirding, if you will, bolstering the New Testament writers. But with that, talking about the apostles and talking about the writings that come from them, with that, Peter never himself claims any papal authority. And that's important to note. If, as the Catholic Church proposes, Peter was the first pope, wouldn't he have said something to that effect? Well, maybe he didn't know. Well, then, if he didn't know, where's the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that is that is on this man, and we would have we would have heard something. And I have to prod this just a little bit because he doesn't claim either papal authority or PayPal authority. It doesn't either one. He he didn't didn't claim. Sorry. But Adam Clark said this, listen to this quote, it is worthy of remark that in no place of the two epistles already examined, first and now second Peter, nor in any of the apostles saying in any other parts of the sacred writings, which would include then the book of Acts, do we find the peculiar tenets of the Romish church. Not one word of his or the pope's supremacy. Not one word of those of effect to be his successors. Nothing of the infallibility claimed by those pretended successors. Nothing of purgatory, penances, pilgrimages, auricular confession, power of the keys, indulgences, extreme unction, which sounds painful, masses, prayers for the dead and not one word on the most essential doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church, transubstantiation. It would be a thousand years before that was put into place. So it's it's interesting that here we have Peter writing. Peter the Apostle. Peter the follower of Jesus. And yet he never mentions any of these things. Peter is one of the twelve, but he is no more than one of the twelve. He never establishes himself above or beyond any of the other twelve apostles. And by the way, he personally includes Paul in that number too. If you look over toward the end of the chapter in verse 15, he says, Regard the patience of our Lord of salvation just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you as also in all his letters, speaking in them of things in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do note this, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures to their own destruction. Peter just elevated the writings of Paul to the writings of the Holy Scriptures of the Hebrew prophets. He counted Paul's letters in with the Scriptures. So again, just 30, 35 years into the church, the New New Testament, while we don't have this canon of Scripture that we would have later on, it's being passed around. The letters are circulating. The Gospels are moving. And Peter is establishing the writings of these apostles and the rest of the Scriptures, and he sees what we need to see. And we have spent now 15 years working on understanding this, and that is the unity of the Older Testament and what we call the New Testament. The Hebrew Scriptures and the New Testament, it's one book. It is one Word of God, and Peter establishes that here, and as far as he is concerned, these words. And someone even goes so far to say, and I would not dispute it, the very words themselves. Chosen and written, scrawled and inscribed by the hands of man, or spoken and inspired by the Spirit of God. From Genesis to Revelation. Now, as we come to the end of the letter, I remind you again that Peter knew he had come to the end of his life. If you look back at chapter 1, just one more time, verse 13, I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, this tent. To stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of this tent is imminent, my tent, is imminent as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. Peter is writing with confidence, I'm about to die. I'm on my way out. This final letter serves as my last will and testament, my final document. This is Peter's swan song, just as Second Timothy was Paul's swan song. And just as Paul wrote in that letter to Timothy, I'm on the way out. Peter's writing the exact same thing. He knows he's about to die. And you know what? In Jesus, that's a good thing to know. That's a good thing to know. Psalm 39 verse 4 says, Lord, make me to know my end. And what is the extent of my days? Let me know how transient I am. You know when we get in trouble? When we think that we are intransient. When we think that we last forever. When we think that no harm can befall us and we're just going to go on and on and and we are impervious to the world and to life. I felt a whole lot more impervious in my 20s than I do in my 50s. Now I'm feeling pervious. (laughs) It is good to know and important to number our days. Peter had received his discharge orders. He knew the time was nearly done. And I believe by direct revelation from Jesus Christ. I can prove it to you. John 21, verse 18. They're on the beach They're at the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus says to Peter, Truly, truly I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. And John, it was clear to Peter then, John clearly explained This he says signifying by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. And when Jesus had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. How did Jesus die? Easy question, hung on a cross. And then Jesus says, Peter, you're going to be led to your death, follow me. And tradition tells us that Peter indeed was crucified That he chose actually to be crucified upside down so as not to be crucified in the exact same way as his Lord. We don't know if that's true or not, but that's what tradition tells us. But there was another thing, another time Jesus indicated the death of Peter. And I don't know if you've caught this before, but back in John chapter 13, it says in verse 31, John 13, 31. I hear some pages turning, so I'll give you just a second to find it. Let your fingers do the walking. John thirteen thirty one. It's there on the night of betrayal, in the upper room, Peter with the apostles, Jesus with the apostles. That is, and it says, actually, let's start in verse thirty. After receiving the morsel, he that is Judas went out immediately, and it was night. So this is the divine moment of betrayal. The decision has been made. Judas has left the building. And things are very dark. And Jesus said, (laughs) Now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in Him. Now, see, that's a person who knows his imminent death and knows his life's purpose. About to die. Now! Now! I mean, that would have been the moment where seeing Judas go out the door, I would have said, Oh, boys, it's going to get heavy. It is going to be bad. Buckle up, because darkness has fallen. And Jesus says, now is the time that the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in Him. And He says, and if God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and will glorify Him immediately. This is hours away. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek Me. And as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going You cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Man, context is everything. That famous verse that we quote and we talk about showing love in the church and love in the brethren, Jesus commanded there on the night of betrayal. And after saying that, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Listen to this. Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Where was Jesus going? To the cross. Where would Peter follow later? To the cross. Peter was told at least twice before Jesus departed the earth that he was going to die. And even hinted at the manner or the measure of his death. Now, some commentators, going back to 2 Peter 3, they figure when Peter refers in chapter 1 to my my death is, is near, you know, the Lord has shown this to me, He has made this clear to me, they think that that's what he's talking about. Either Jesus sharing with him on the beach of the Sea of Galilee, or in the upper room, or both, that the implication had been given that Peter, you are going to one day die a death that you don't want to die. And Peter now has had 30, 35 years and has been thinking about it and processing it. And so now as he writes this letter, he's thinking, it's got to be soon. I thought that 15 years ago. Oh, not about my imminent death, but about the coming of the Lord. It's got to be soon. And I was thinking again today, it's got to be soon. So was Peter drawing off those previous revelations of Jesus and kind of bringing them to the fore now and thinking about Him and realizing, well, maybe, maybe now is the time. No, listen again to what he said. He said, The laying aside of my earthly tent is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. The mood tents there, which you might not see in the English, But it's the indicative sense, which means with certainty. Peter is saying the Lord has with certainty declared to me I'm about to die. And so because of that and some other things here, I believe Jesus came to Peter and told him by revelation of his immediate departure. And knowing this now that Jesus says, okay Peter, time's up. You're coming home. Now Peter sits down and he begins to write this letter and he does it in three inspired bursts. We divide it up into three chapters. Chapter one, he writes to reinforce faith. I want to make sure before I go, I've done everything I can to encourage faith and build up faith and reinforce faith. And we saw that in chapter one as he talks about applying to your faith moral excellence and knowledge and self control and perseverance and godliness, brotherly kindness and love. He's building up faith, reinforcing faith. Chapter one. In chapter two, He's reprimanding the false teachers, and we spent the last couple of Sundays on that. Heavy teaching, serious teaching, going after deceit and falsehood and lies, deception. And so he covers that, reprimanding the false teachers. Well now, in chapter three, which is I think where Peter has wanted to go all along, he is returning focus to the future. Returning focus to the future. One of our shepherds, Russ Pitts, told me the other day, he said, you know, Rick, the closer you get to Revelation, the more animated you get. He's right. Because I'm thinking about that. I know where we're going. Not only in the Scriptures, but I know where we're going in the future. This is important stuff and, and necessary for us to think about. And as followers of Jesus, as much or as little as you may know or understand of the Scriptures, the focus on the future is vital to our faith. Looking to what Jesus said is coming and knowing what it is. It's not just about being prepared, it's about being motivated and energized and excited for what God is going to do. So Moses wrote in Psalm 90, is less read tonight, teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. This is a long summer day in mid-July. But it's just one day. Now if I was going to entitle this teaching anything, I would call it four days to eternity. Just four days to eternity, and I'll explain why in a moment. But Peter comes to the last section of the letter, and he brings right at the beginning of the last chapter a litmus test of true versus false teaching coming off of the reprimand of the false teachers, focusing on the future. Here's the litmus test. Here's what you can do any time you're listening to a teacher. You can ask any pastor, any teacher, where do you stand on this? And here's the litmus test if they're teaching truth. Are you ready? It's how the teacher views the second coming of Jesus Christ. If they view the second coming of Jesus biblically, with anticipation, with expectation... You can usually be pretty confident in the teaching. Listen to verse 3. Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where's the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. How does the teacher view the second coming of Jesus? The false teacher will mock, will scorn, will set aside Will, will say unnecessary or will feign ignorance about the whole thing. That's the test. I always check for this when I'm told to listen to a new teacher. I always look into this when someone says, hey, will you check out this church? And I go to the church website. Do they say anything about the future? Are they talking anything about the coming of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, our King? Don't you want the King to come? Shouldn't we be concerned with and and processing the issue that He could come at any time? Are we ready for Him to come? This is vital to our teaching and our understanding of all of Scriptures. Where do they stand on the second coming of Jesus? Because Peter says it's going to come under great scorn in the last days. People are not going to want to talk about it. Or again, if they do, they're going to make fun of it. Now to be fair... It's been 2,000 years since Peter wrote this, right? So when someone comes along going, where's the promise of His coming? Everything's the same as it was. I mean, you might be tempted to say they've got a point. It has been a long time, Lord. How long, oh, oh Lord, you may want to ask? Well, Peter now answers this question, this issue, this issue of how long it's been, and he does so by delineating four days. Four days to eternity. Here's the outline for our study tonight. If you want to jot this down, if you're a note taker, we're going to look first at the last days. The last days. Secondly, the day of the Lord. Thirdly, the day of God. And yes, there is a difference. And fourthly, what I like to call the full day. The full day. So again, the last days, number one, that's verses 3 through 9. The day of the Lord we see mentioned Briefly in verse 10, the day of God, verses 11 through 13, and finally the full day, verses 14 through 18, and that will conclude the letter of Peter. So let's look at the last days, number one, the last days. The last days. You've probably heard me use that phrase. I hope you've heard me use it a lot. Because again, I believe, right or wrong, and I'm pretty sure I'm right, I believe it is the responsibility of Bible-teaching pastors to keep us focused on the days in which we live, which are, biblically speaking, the last days. Now, we have been in the last days for 2,000 years, but the last days are... I mean, we are at the last of the last days. If the last days started 2,000 years ago, we got to be close. Right? And as Paul said, we are nearer now than when we first believed. And every day that goes by brings us nearer to the end of the last days. The last days, are, are, are very, it's a very biblical phrase. In, in the Greek, it's eschaton ton hameron. Eschaton ton hameron, and used throughout the Scriptures. And in the Septuagint, Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, that phrase is just as common as we see it in the New Testament. The last days. You go all the way back to Genesis 49, verse 1. Jacob summoned his sons and said, Assemble yourselves, that I may tell you what will befall you in the last days. And as old Jacob on his deathbed began to speak blessing and curse and and inheritance to his twelve sons, as he began to lay all that out, he was speaking prophetically. That's an amazing study. Genesis 49. Or Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2. The prophet said it will come about that in the last days. The mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. Will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. Not to the NATO summit, but to the house of the Lord. All the nations are going to gather there. Or Jeremiah chapter twenty-three, verse twenty. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has performed and carried out the purposes of his heart in the last days. You will clearly understand it. Or Acts two, seventeen and 18 which is a quote of Joel 2:28 and 29 it shall be in the last days god says that i will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind your sons and your daughters shall prophesy your young men shall see visions your old men shall dream dreams even on my bond slaves both men and women i will in those days pour forth of my spirit and they shall prophesy and so that tells us where the last days began right at pentecost Because in the last days, I'm pouring out my Spirit. First time God ever did that in history. He always poured His Spirit on individuals, on certain kings and on the prophets of old. But for the first time now, He pours out His Spirit, lock, stock and barrel, on the church, on followers of Jesus Christ. And it began at Pentecost, which kicked off the last days. The last days. And we've been in there ever since. The last days, just for reference point, are the in-between just after Jesus' first coming and running right up into His glorious appearing. The last days. But the mocker, the mocker implies something else. The mocker with his mocking comes along saying, today is the same as yesterday. Nothing's changed. It's just been 2,000 years and it's all the same. And I understand we've got Apple now. You know, I understand we've got tech now, and this is the information. I get all that, but nothing's really, as far as globally, the earth just kind of rolls on and on and on. Nothing's changed. Nothing's gonna change. So you Christians talking about the rapture of the church and, and the second coming of Jesus, whoop. I mean, maybe if he had come soon, back in the first century, but nothing's changed. A question. Who are these mockers? Is there anything that we can learn about them? There's a hint right in verse 4. Where is the promise of His coming, they say? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. What does that tell you about the mockers? They're believers. A non-believer would not reference the beginning of creation. Peter is talking about those who have some semblance of faith. And as we talked about back in chapter 2, the false teachers at least feign belief, claim to believe in Jesus. Just because someone says it doesn't mean it. I mean, look where their feet go. You know the old saying, just because you go to McDonald's doesn't make you a hamburger? Okay, Just because you go to church doesn't make you a Christian. Just because you show up or you claim something, no, it's 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 how it plays out in your life. It's being doers of the Word, not merely hearers who delude themselves as Yaakov told us. These are believers who accept and at least can state the beginning of creation and they look back and they go from the day of creation forward, it all remains the same, nothing's changed, and they come mocking and these are those who while feigning belief, they ignore legitimate examples of divine judgment throughout history. And that's the problem. They scorn the word of God, even as they swallow the lie of, and it's an actual philosophy, it's dying, but it's a philosophy, it's called uniformitarianism. You ever heard of that? Uniformitarianism is a failed secular philosophy that claims that the present is the key to the past. In other words, what's happening now is what happened then. As things are, so they have always been. And uniformitarianism completely uh, denies catastrophic global events such as the flood. A uniformitarianist would say, there's never been any big thing like that. The flood's a lie. The flood is untrue. Why are you mentioning the flood? Because that's right where Peter goes in verse 5. For when they maintain this, that is, that nothing changes, it just rolls on. When they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, that's creation, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. The flood. And this is Peter's profound argument against things just always being the same. Against someone saying, there's not going to be any divine judgment. There's not going to be any second coming of Jesus. Or if it is, it'll be a long way off. Or we'll just all kind of fade into heaven someday. You know, when the mockers come with their mocking, Peter says, you know what? Let's look at the flood and think about how that went down. Consider it. Ah, the flood. The flood myth is what you're talking about. Interesting that every ancient civilization has a flood story. Not a little flood story, but a decimating flood story. You go all the way back to ancient Babylon and there are stories of the entire earth being destroyed by flood. Folklore? Myth? Stuff of fairy tales? We don't just have to look at ancient civilizations, we can look at the earth itself, because the earth, let's put the earth on the witness stand, just for a moment here, related to the flood, put earth up there, because what the Bible tells us in Psalm 85.11 is truth springs from the earth, and righteousness looks down from heaven. We use that verse when we're in, when we're in Israel because there's so many archaeological digs, and truth springs from the earth. And you can't say that you know there wasn't a temple of Solomon or a city of David in Jerusalem because the truth is there. Man, the archaeological evidence is all over the place. Truth springs from the earth. So it is with the flood, and I'm talking about the fossil record. If you have any question about whether there was a global flood, just look at the fossil record. I'll give you a couple things to think about. What does it take to form a fossil? How do you do that? How does a fossil itself get made? It is not just the ebb and flow of time. If you throw a leaf in your backyard, it's not going to become a fossil in a couple of days. It takes some process. What is that process? It's a process by which something happens suddenly. Fossils are formed by an instantaneous upheaval that embeds either creatures or plant life in the layers of the earth's strata or sediment. Which is why, and no one talks about this, but why marine life marine life is found between layers of coal fossilized whales in Michigan. Or fossilized sharks... In Ohio, When was the last time you traveled to Ohio and someone said, look out for the sharks? <laughs> well, fossilized sharks have been found there. Fossilized fish in Wyoming. And I'm talking about marine oceanic fish. Found in places that are 7,000 feet above sea level. The fossil record. How'd they get there? They swim there? Across the sands? There are fossilized trees that extend through several layers of strata, each layer supposed to lay down over millions and millions and millions of years, but you got a tree that runs right up the middle of it. How is that possible? Unless something happened all at once. We learned so much when Mount St. Helens blew, because it was an automatic, now it was a, a limited event, but it was a cataclysmic event that happened so quickly and so fast, we ended up with sedimentary levels that we could look at and go, wow, that looks exactly like some of these ancient levels that we thought were millions of years old. The fossil record has so much to teach us. Go to the, the Agate Fossil Bed National Park. This is in Agate Springs, Nebraska. And in one great massive slab of sediment, they uncovered bones of over 9,000 different animals buried together instantaneously. Global flood. Now I have so much on this, and I'm, I'm just kind of setting aside, and when we swing back around to Genesis, we'll spend some time on this, and we'll talk more about the fossil record. I'm just telling you, the evidence is incredible, and Peter uses the word through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. That word flooded is katakludzo. Where we get our word cataclysm. A cataclysmic event. Katakludzo means to overflow or overwhelm with water in a sudden deluge. The Bible tells us that the flood came for 150 days on the earth. In fact, four times in Genesis chapter 7, Verses 18, 19, 20, and 24. Four times it says the water prevailed. The water prevailed. The word prevailed is better translated inundated the planet. Just inundated. It's a remarkable thing that happened in the flood. It wasn't just a gentle spring rain. It wasn't just the dumping of water from above. It was the dumping of water from beneath as well. Rain going both ways. The water rose 15 cubits higher, according to Scripture, than the highest mountain. Mount Everest stands 29,029 feet above sea level. The flood rose another 22 and a half feet, at least above that. So the entire planet was completely deluged. How is that possible? Genesis chapter 1, verses 6 and 7 is interesting because in the description, Of creation, what we read there, what we discover is not one, but two deeps. Two deeps. The Bible talks about the waters, God separated the waters above from the waters below, and the waters below He formed into the oceans. Waters above? The waters were separated two ways. Another fascinating and scientifically uh, researched study is what's been called the water canopy that surrounded the earth at that time. That made the entire wor- world tropical. Which is why they found bodies of woolly mammoths with uh, frozen solid in ice with tropical plant life in their digestive tract. Makes no sense, that kind of thing. And yet, the world was covered with this water canopy protecting against the harmful rays of the sun it explains why people could live as long as they live until the flood and the bursting of this thing. So think about that kind of a deluge. The water canopy, it bursts, comes down. The gates of the deep, it says, are opened up and the water comes up and it just, it would have been horrifying. The global flood Job 12 verse 15 says behold he restrains the waters and they dry up and he sends them out and they inundate the earth those were the early days 600 well 1650 days or so after creation so not that far in not even as long as since Jesus came the first time 1600 years those are the early days these are the last days the last days and and in talking about the last days and opening up this discussion Peter he points back all the way back to Noah and the flood and in chapter 2 he also pointed back all the way to Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah there was another cataclysmic event that was more localized but a destructive event that took place a divine intervention of destructive judgment Uh, Peter could have pointed to the plagues over Egypt what took place in that span of time in the, in the deliverance of the children of Israel? Point is, what Peter is pointing at and getting at in this letter are moments of divine intervention and judgment in the early days that would, we would be alerted to the coming divine intervention and judgment in the last days. God intervened at these po- points in history. He will do it again. And by the way, don't let this escape your notice. As long as we're talking about divine intervention, as long as we're talking about the hand of God uh, reaching into time and into this world and acting on judgment, there was another. In fact, we could call it the greatest moment of divine intervention in history, at the apex, at the hinge of history in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Because that judgment changed Everything. Jesus on the cross judged more profoundly than mankind at the flood. More profoundly than Sodom and Gomorrah. More intensely then again, say the plagues of Egypt. Jesus taking the sin of humanity on His shoulders at that point in history, God intervened with the greatest judgment of all eternity, laid it on the shoulders of Jesus at that fixed time, and again it changed the world. So that John would write in 1 John 2.1, My little children, I'm writing you these things so you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. There's enough blood to cover everyone. Enough blood, if you will, to flood every person who's ever lived, if they would but believe in Jesus Christ. So Peter would say, as we're repeating tonight, don't you dare for a moment think that God doesn't intervene in human history. Or the judgment won't fall again as it fell clearly in the past. But mockers in their mocking ignore all warnings of judgment. They never see it coming. And so also referring to the flood, Jesus said in Matthew 24 38, In those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. In the last days. And that's what we're headed for. The coming of the Son of Man. Now, Peter's going to hint in verse 7 at another day. But by His word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire Kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Reserved for fire. Let's talk about global warming. Just for a moment. Because the Bible does declare a global warming, but it will happen in an instant. In a moment. You know, from time to time the news media likes to bring out threat warnings. Especially when there's nothing going on in Washington and things are a little quiet with the Trump presidency, they like to find something to stir people up, right? And so a recent one that I've read and I, I've seen talked about is the supervolcano under Yellowstone National Park. Have you read news articles about this? Man, if this one blows, they say. It's the Yellowstone Caldera. And apparently it's huge, and it's said to have a destructive power of debris 2,500 times greater than Mount St. Helens. So this is a big deal. They say if, if that super volcano blows under Yellowstone, and if you have plans to go there this summer, just beware. If it blows, the ash cloud alone would extend more than 500 miles, destroying crops, spewing sulfur dioxide into the ozone, and causing a decade-long global cooling event. The Yellowstone caldera is a firecracker compared to what Peter is describing here. It's a snap. It's nothing by comparison. Gang, we are sitting on a powder keg, as Peter describes it. And I only smile because I know that God is the one who knows when to light the fuse. But when this world goes, it will go. Packed tightly in the nucleus of atomic matter is stored the very thing that God will use to decimate not only the earth, but the entire universe. Heavens and the earth. The whole thing's going to blow. You want to know more about that? Come back Sunday, because we're going to really dig in on what that means and when that will happen. But in the meantime, is it wrong to ask How long? Is it wrong to say, Lord? I mean, in my life, it's been a while. And I've been waiting. I think about when I first started to understand and believe what the Bible taught, literally, about the last days and the days that would follow. It's been a long time. Less? It's been a while. You know? And you think about... How long it's been since the church has been talking about these things, and then you start to look back over church history. Is it wrong to say, Lord, how long? Listen, after asking the Lord to teach us to number our days in Psalm ninety, Moses says in Psalm ninety verse thirteen, "Do return, O Lord." Have you ever said that? <laughs> Do return. Our washer went out, and I just went, "Do return, O Lord." <laughs> how long will it be? Moses writes. And be sorry for your servants. Oh, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness that we may sing for joy and be glad in all our days. You see, that's faith. That's not heresy. To ask how long. To wonder that it's been 2,000 years. That's okay. That's not the problem here. Faith looks forward. Faith longs for, asks for, even as Peter's going to say, even hastens the coming of his day. What the mockers are doing is mocking His return. They're scorning His return. It is wrong to deride the coming of Jesus to laugh it off as far-fetched or fanatical. But yes, it has been a while since He promised to come. So, Peter says in verse 8, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years is like One day. Key phrase there, please hear this, with the Lord. With the Lord. A thousand years is as a day, and a day is as a thousand years. Some have taken this verse and said, well, so, you know, applying that verse theologically, every day of creation could have been a thousand years. And therefore, creation took a lot, billions and billions perhaps of years. We just see it in seven days because that's all our puny minds way back then could could comprehend and understand. I've heard that argument. Although the Bible is very clear. It was evening and it was morning. One day. And it was evening and it was morning. One day. A second day. People have taken this verse and they've also looked over at Revelation chapter 20 and they've said, I see that there there's a thousand year reign of Christ mentioned six times. I get that. But maybe it's metaphorical. Because after all, a thousand years is as a day and a day is a thousand years with the Lord. Listen, understand this. Yes, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. But here's some shocking information. For you and me, a day is roughly a day one day is one day and you know long summer days is still just a day a thousand years for us i know this is stunning information are a thousand years see we mark time on this side of eternity we are bound by time And the Bible is written to a people who are bound by time that we would understand the chronology of things and how things worked. God is not bound by time. So what we're talking about here is a matter of perspective. For the Lord, yes, a thousand years is as a day, and a day is as a thousand years. Why? Because He is I Am. And if you are I Am, not bound by time or space, as God is then it makes no difference. If it's one day or a thousand years, you're, you are. So your existence is not... I, I've heard the example of the Goodyear blimp over the New Year's Day parade. Have you heard that one? That's a good way to look at it. You can sit on the corner and watch the New Year's Day parade go by and you get to see one float at a time, like one day at a time. Or you can be up in the, in the Goodyear blimp and you can see the whole parade all at once. Well, it's a different perspective. Our perspective, a day is a day. God's perspective, it could be a day, it could be a thousand years. It makes no difference because He is, I am. And again, in Psalm 90, Moses wrote, Lord, You have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born, or You gave birth to the earth and the Lord, and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, You are God. You turn man back to dust and say, Return, O children of men, for a thousand years in Your sight... Like yesterday when it passes by or as a watch in the night. So a day is a day for you and for me. A thousand years is a thousand years for us on this planet. But to the Lord, He is I Am and sees it all at once. This is part of Peter's argument for those who are saying, well, it's taken forever. No, it's just two days. Verse 9. Verse 9, he says, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And that turns the mocker right on His head. Why has He taken so long? Where is the promise of His coming? Patience. Well, I'm tired of being patient. I'm not talking about your patience. I'm talking about the patience of God. Not a day goes by in my life that I don't thank God He was patient to wait until I chose Jesus. And for every one of us here tonight, that He was patient for us to come to that place of faith. Others have gone on before us. I remember listening to Chuck Smith talking about the rapture of the church over and over and how he looked forward to it and it was going to happen before he died and, well, Chuck has passed away course he's going to be first up, you know, the dead in Christ rise first and then the rest of us get to follow along. But I remember Chuck talking about that and, and, and longing for that. But God's patience has put it off, even beyond the death of Chuck Smith, even beyond perhaps mine, I, I, I don't know, I kind of don't think so, but God is patient. This is not about how the Lord keeps time. It's about how He remains patient. And the last days have stretched out in so many years, across the centuries, because God is patient. Think about Jeremiah. Man, the patience of the Lord held off and held off and held off the judgment of Judah. And Jeremiah sat there, we think perhaps on the Mount of Olives watching Jerusalem burn and pinning the book of Lamentations. As he recognizes the scene of horrific destruction of a city and a people who had denied God and had not repented and turned back, he writes in Lamentations 3.22, the Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, and His compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the person who seeks Him. Even while God is waiting for those who have not yet chosen to wait for Him, God is patient. Unfailingly patient. And and all along, in His patience, As Peter's going to say, the patience of the Lord is salvation. So all along, in his patience, God has been securing reservations for a first class twinkling of an eye flight home. Everybody that comes to faith in Jesus, as God waits patiently, will be among those caught up. How marvelous is the patience of the Lord. And I'll tell you what, if you're ever in a moment where, when you're just crying out, how long, oh Lord, if You came yesterday, it wouldn't be too soon. Pause and think about someone you love who doesn't know Jesus. And thank God that He is patient. He's still waiting for them. He's still holding back. That flight home, by the way, the rapture of the church as the Bible describes, that's before judgment. That's prior to condemnation in verse 10, he says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. And this is where some people get confused. But we're now moving on to the next day. Okay, we, we were in the last days. We are currently right now. We're in the last days. But the next day is the day of the Lord. Actually, i gotta, I got to insert this took it out of my notes, I'm going to stick it back in. Actually, right before the day of the Lord, there's another day described called the day of Christ. The day of Christ. Look it up in your Bibles. The day of Christ is the rapture of the church. It is a singular event. It's instantaneous. The day of Christ goes by like that. The last days span 2,000 years. Day of Christ, which is the next day on the calendar, boom, it's gone. After the day of Christ comes, then the day of the Lord. Following the rapture, okay, fo- focus on this. The Bible says in more than one place, Jesus said it, Paul said it, Peter says it, comes as a thief in the night. The day of the Lord comes as a thief because the world is not going to expect it. And it also follows a, a thieving, if you will. The church has just been stolen. Believers in Jesus have been pulled out immediately. And the day of the Lord gets underway. So the last days, day of Christ, rapture of the church. And then the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is a long day. It spans, at that point forward, it will span a seven year tribulation. We're going to break this down when we get into Revelation this fall, Lord willing. Jeremiah chapter 30 verse 6. says, ask now and see if a male can give birth. I don't like that verse at all. (laughs) Why do I see every man, his hands on his loins, as a woman in childbirth? And why have all their faces turned pale? A short answer is no man should ever be made to give birth. But he says, alas, for that day is great, there's none like it, and it is the time of Jacob's distress, but he will be saved from it. The tribulation. The time of judgment. That's in the day of the Lord. But but then the day of the Lord spans the entire thousand year millennial kingdom as well. That's all still the day of the Lord. It is one long day. Well, how do you know that? Because we know, as Peter says here, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Okay? Pause with that. Jeremiah talks about the day of the Lord as a time of Jacob's distress. But then... Joel the prophet also, who talks about the day of the Lord in Joel chapter 2, in Joel chapter 3, verse 18 says, "...and in that day the mountains will drip with sweet wine, and the hills will flow with milk, and all the brooks of Judah will flow with water, and a spring will go out from the house of the Lord to water the valley of Shittim." That's the millennial kingdom he's describing. Same day. Still the day of the Lord. So the day of the Lord does include a seven-year tribulation time, period of judgment and wrath but then a thousand years of Jesus perfect rule and reign in the millennial kingdom that is all part and parcel of the day of the Lord the kingdom age which finally leads up to the day of God but note this he says the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up that's at the end of the day of the Lord at the end of the thousand year reign, there's something that happens right then and there as the day of the Lord transitions into the day of God. The day of the Lord to the day of God. Verse 11, he writes, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat. So the end of the day of the Lord is this firestorm we're talking about. And I'm going to save it for Sunday. Because that is part of what we'll look at. We will look specifically at the whole day of the Lord. So if you're still a little confused on the timing of it, we'll be specific on Sunday. We'll unpack it at that time. But he does say it leads into the day of God... Verse 13, but according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness, righteousness dwells. So, powder keg prophecy on Sunday, how it will happen, specifically, and by the way, it is, it's scientific. <laughs> what Peter writes here as a Galilean fisherman is scientifically spot on. And we'll look at that. We're going to talk about when it's going to happen. When is this destruction by fire? Because if you thought through things, you say, well, there's the rapture of the church and, and there's the tribulation period and there's a the millennial kingdom. And then I, I know in Revelation, there's something about a new heaven, a new Jerusalem, a new earth. Well, when, when does everything get destroyed by fire? We'll look at that on Sunday and I think it's very clear. But for tonight, Peter ends by calling our attention to one final day, the full day. Verse 14. Therefore, have I left you thoroughly confused, by the way, in that little three-verse section there of the day of the Lord, day of God? Are any of you kind of going, eh? Well, just come Sunday. We'll be all right. And if Jesus comes before Sunday, you're going to know anyway. Okay? So we're covered. Verse 14, therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, note that, since you look for these things, he's assuming followers of Jesus Christ, you are looking for these things. You are future-focused. You are anticipating. Since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless. Now as we saw on Sunday, this is the opposite of the stains and blemishes of the false teachers back in chapter 2, verse 13. Stains or spotless? Blemishes or blameless? And note how he says this. Be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless. Why is that? Because peace comes by righteousness. If you want peace in your life, it comes through spotlessness and blamelessness. These are peaceful traits. Rebellion is not peaceful. It is upheaval. Sin is not comforting. You're not going to find yourself relaxing into a world that is sick and sinful that that's not where peace is found peace is found in holiness found in righteousness in the presence of god that's where you find peace that's where the world stops and you recognize that your faith is in one higher who does hold the key to everything That's where peace is found, verse 15, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Listen, what I believe about Jesus coming then will dynamically alter how I live for Him now. And that's why over the years I've been back to this time and time again and we keep talking about this. My understanding of His coming then, my looking forward to future things to come, affects how I live right now. Like nothing else can. It is the greatest motivator I have seen for followers of Jesus Christ to know He's coming, to know His coming is imminent, and to have some sense of what that looks like. Man, that moves you. To share Jesus and to live for Him and to desire Him and long for His return, even to hasten His return. Did, did you notice that he said that? Verse 12, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Living a life that would, that would hurry it up. Come on, Lord, come on, bring the day of God. Not just the day of the Lord. Bring the day of God. I can't wait for the day of God. Well, Rick, we didn't explain what the day of God exactly is yet. We will. But you're going to want to hasten it when we fully understand it. Regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, he says. The patience of the Lord. You know, every time I talk about His soon return, every time I think about His waiting and this patience, but that He could come at any time, I always think of, and I'm sure you do too, those we know who don't know it. And so it sets up what I've called the divine tension. We have this tension between our longing to be with Jesus and our longing for loved ones to be with Him who right now are not with Him. How do we navigate this? How do we walk with this tension in us and on our hearts, this burden, if you will? I want to hasten His return and I want Him to be as patient as possible. How do I deal with that? Well, you know what? You don't have to worry about it. Because the Lord knows how. And I don't. But He does. And those two attitudes are not mutually exclusive. You can long for His coming and you can pray for the lost. And the longing for His coming motivates your heart for the lost like like nothing I know. Every passing day is proof positive that God is patient, not wishing for anything. To perish. If anyone ever says to you God is judgmental and harsh and uncaring you say wait a minute he doesn't want anyone to perish. Which includes you, mocker. <laughs> Which includes the worst of the worst that has ever lived. There is nobody on the planet right now that God wants to, to see perish. The Bible tells us he takes no pleasure in the death of the sinner. It doesn't make God happy. Ah, there's another one. That's not our God. Now he is patient, not wishing any to perish, and so we regard his patience as salvation. Even as we look to and hasten the coming of the day of God. But he continues and says, Just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. One more thing about this. I think it's so interesting how Peter refers to Paul. Beloved brother according to the wisdom given him. Paul wrote about this same thing, that the patience of the Lord is salvation. Didn't he? Peter's confirming that this was written by Paul. Well, where did Paul write that? Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Peter read that. Peter knew that. Peter, again, as I said earlier, affirms the writings of Paul as Scripture... Paul said in Romans 3.25, In the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed for the demonstration of his righteousness at the present time, so he would be just and the justifier of one who has faith in Jesus. That's the patience of God. Holding off judgment for sin until Jesus would come and die to redeem. The patience of God. Paul talked about these things. And Peter, going on, talking about his, again, beloved brother, says in verse 16, "...as also in his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which (laughs) are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort or twist or pervert, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures to their destruction." Now, we can't say exactly how, But based on Peter's word, we know that some were twisting the letters of Paul. Some were taking the teachings that Paul had brought uh, of the fledgling church here, and they were twisting them up and distorting them. And we think perhaps it was Paul's teaching more than anything else on grace. His teaching on freedom from the law. That there were those who were coming along and, and taking that as license to sin and twisting it up and saying, oh, well, if we're free from the law, we can do whatever we want, you know? Taking the teachings of Paul and making a mess of them, and people, by the way, have been doing it ever since. To take the time to study through the Scriptures as penned by Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, it all fits perfectly together. And there is no room for distortion. But however people abused his letters, I just I love to see, and this is so edifying to me, to see Peter standing by Paul. He stands up for him. Puts in a good word for him. You know, Peter, who walked with Jesus, an apostle, leader of the church, missionary extraordinaire, Peter, saying, no, no, Paul's my bro. He's beloved. And I've read Galatians, and I know there were sharp disagreements between the two of them. As as Paul wrote in Galatians 2.11, in fact, Paul was somewhat of a firebrand. We know that. He says, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. That's in Scripture. You know that Peter himself says, oh yeah, the writings of Paul, that's legitimate stuff. And what about the one where he called you out, Pete? Is that legitimate? What it tells me is these two men had a good relationship. Here at the end, because remember, both Paul and Peter would die in Rome within probably days of each other. One crucified, the other beheaded by the sword. These two men were brothers. And that's something people sometimes miss in the letters of Paul how much unity really did mean and matter to him. This is the same apostle who told Timothy, Hey, I want you to tell, or, or told the Ephesian church, I want you to tell and Syntyche to get along in the Lord. Stopped this di- disputing. He couldn't say that if he wasn't one who stood for unity, as in Ephesians chapter four, where he says his great concern is the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So at some point, though, though Paul did oppose Peter because Peter was sliding back in, in the writing of the Galatian letter. They they worked together. They supported each other. He was beloved brother, and it tells me that listen. Brotherhood is thicker than conflict. Oh, that we would learn that reality in the church today. Brotherhood is thicker than conflict. We may have disagreements. Brotherhood is thicker. We may cross each other the wrong way. Brotherhood is thicker. We may hurt each other. Inadvertently or intentionally, brotherhood is thicker. Family matters to God. And there's not a one of us in this room that is perfect in all of our relationships and all of our dealings with other people. And therefore, like Peter, we ought to be able to stand up even with those who have come at us, accused us rightfully, but accused us nonetheless, and turn around and say, but he's my beloved brother. She is my beloved sister. We are a family, and though we may be at odds today, we will work it out and walk it out and love each other tomorrow. Because that's what family does. And that's what Peter heard when Jesus said in John 13.34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are My disciples if you have love for one another. And now Peter sums up the whole letter. Verse 17. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand... Knowing what? All of it. The whole letter. Everything he said. It's the whole thing. Coming together. Knowing this beforehand... Be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And that's the key. That is, in a nutshell, the key to the whole thing. How do I deal with false teachers? How do I keep an alert against heresy? How do I remain strong in my faith as as I navigate these waters of the last days? How do I do this? Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is it. Grace and knowledge are not theological constructs that we break down and, and, and define and try to clarify for each other. No, grace and knowledge are the relationship dynamics of being with Jesus. The grace, how do I grow in grace? You spend time with Jesus because He is grace. And how do I get closer to Him? How do I get knowledge? Jesus is truth. He is both grace and truth. John 1.14, the Word who became flesh, dwelt among us. We saw His glory, glorious of the only begotten, from the Father, full of grace and truth, growing grace. Grow in truth. Grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. He says in John 1.14, grace and truth are realized through Jesus Christ. Your best place to go, even in dealing with false teaching, go to Jesus. Go to the Gospels. Grow in grace and truth. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. And that's the full day. The full day. The day of eternity. Ran across this verse when we were studying through Proverbs chapter 4, verse 18. Blew me away. I love this. The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn. You know right now, if you are a follower of Jesus, you're on the path of the righteous. You're walking that path. You may stumble. I have. I do. You will. We may trip. We may get a little off into the hedges we need to be pulled back on, but we are on that path. And the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn. Imagine that. It shines brighter and brighter and brighter until the full day, what Peter here calls the day of eternity. The day of eternity. Man, we have so much to look forward to. I think what stunned me the most about teaching through Revelation the very first time, was coming to the end of the millennial kingdom. thousand year reign of Christ. Oh, it's marvelous. I can't even imagine. I mean, 53 years is my life thus far. A thousand years with Jesus ruling and reigning. Wow. And you know what? You get to the end of Revelation chapter 20 and it's not the end. No, suddenly he's talking about a new heaven and a new Jerusalem and a new earth and there's the full day. There's where it really takes off. That's what we're looking to when He says, by the way, hint, hint, for Sunday, hastening the day of God. The full day. The day unending. The day as Moses perhaps was thinking when he wrote Psalm 90, verse 14, O oh, satisfy us in the morning with Your loving kindness that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Amen? Let's pray. Holy Lord Jesus, thank You. Thank You for the promise of the full day. Thank You for Your patience, Lord, in these last days. Thank You, Lord, for following through with all Your promises even in the day of the Lord and the day of God. Help us to understand and comprehend these things. And I pray Your blessing, Lord, on our fellowship. I I want to go ahead and pray, Father, if I may, for Sunday morning. And should You tarry, and we're here back here Sunday again to worship and be in Your Word. Lord, would You prepare our hearts for it? And would You prepare our fellowship in revelation of Your Word and of the day of God, which we are all called to look forward to. Father, give us a love like Yours that is patient with the lost. But give us a longing as well, hastening the coming day of God. And Father, we do look to the culmination of all these things when we will see Jesus and we will see the look in His eyes. We look forward to that. Father, we praise You in Jesus' name. Amen.